Looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. This is the Bold Base Performance Podcast. Welcome back to another episode on the Bold Base Performance Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we had a very special guest on the show, John Corbo. John is board certified in sports physical therapy at the Institute for Athletic Medicine. He's a mentor in the sports residency program and is an expert in blood flow restriction or BFR training. It was a true pleasure having him on the show and is always energizing to be around people like him who are so driven and true pioneers in the field. John is definitely on our same wavelength and somebody that we look up to greatly. For more information on John, BFR, or any resources discussed in the show, please check the show notes. Let's dive into today's episode. Let's continue to grow together and change the system. On today's podcast, we have a special guest with us. John Corbo is a physical therapist at the Institute for Athletic Medicine in Minneapolis. He works with Fairview and the University of Minnesota as a mentor to the sports residency program and expert in blood flow restriction training. John is board certified in sports physical therapy and has passion for working with athletes of all, ty- uh, all types. John went to St. John's University for his undergrad, which is the same college that I went to, and he went to St. Catharines for PT school. I had the fortune of meeting John when I was an injured athlete and needed physical therapy when I was in PT school. After graduating, I started working with him at the same company and have interacted with him at numerous conferences and courses. John taught a course on blood flow restriction training this winter that I attended, and that was an inspiration for me to ask him to be on our podcast today to dive deeper into the research and clinical use of blood flow restriction training, or BFR. How's that for an intro, John? It's pretty decent, Tom. I do have to say, Tom, you're probably one of the biggest go-getters that I know one of the one up-and-coming therapists who have really accomplished a lot in a short period of time. So um, kudos to you. I appreciate that, John. Um, as a mentor to me and someone who I email, seems like on a weekly, if not you know, week, a daily basis, um, that means a lot coming from you. So thank you. Um, so let's dive into it right now. Blood flow restriction. How did it start? How did physical therapy become using it more often? Um, and the pros and cons of it. Let's start a little bit of that, and we'll go from there. Yeah, a lot of this began, I mean, blood flow restriction training has been around since, uh, I mean, before time, it seems like, and even in the 1930s. But it really took off in the mid-1960s by a gentleman's name of Dr. Yoshiaki Sato. He was kneeling at a Buddhist ceremony when he was 18 years old, And when he went to stand up after kneeling for several hours, he felt this intense muscle pump in his, in his calves. And he had this aha moment of, I wonder if I can get a workout in or this intense pump without actually lifting weights. And through trial and error and numerous pulmonary embolisms, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for, for us, he came up with his katsu band. So katsu means add pressure. And he, when he was 25, he was able to put this to the test on himself after a skiing injury he ruptured a few ligaments in his knee and then also sprained or did something or actually fractured his ankle and he put in a long leg cast for six weeks 
and he put his katsu band on him and did isometric exercises and when they took the long leg cast off the doctors were like holy cow he didn't lose any muscle size there's no atrophy so then from then on it just took off but from the sports medicine and PT world, that's where we um, looked at the torchbearer for us, which is Johnny Owens, and he's part of the Owens Recovery Group and the mastermind behind that. And he used to work for the Center of the Intrepid, which is a, which is a military medical center down in San Antonio, Texas. They were tending to numerous military veterans coming back from overseas who had uh, injured limbs, and instead of getting their limbs amputated, they did limb salvage procedures. So they would take muscle grafts, bone grafts to try to conserve the limb, preserve the limb. And a lot of times these individuals had a tough time loading and getting stronger and trying to return to running and things like that. So they tried to use this blood flow restriction training on them and actually had really good results. So then fast forward to uh, a couple years later after that, in 2012, they started to make it, uh, he started to bring it into the sports medicine world. And now to today, pretty much every single Pro professional sports team has blood flow restriction training. Most colleges have it, and now we're seeing in the cities here a numerous number of of PT clinics have BFR training. So a lot has changed and has moved forward in the last few years. So that's how it's become more more known and, and prevalent in the PT world. And when did you start using that in clinic? That would have been two years ago. So 2015, I drove down to no 20. That's 2017, I drove down to Chicago and took the Owens recovery course. And how have you found it to be in clinic? Who do you use it with? How often a week do you use it? Things like that. Kind of break it down from a clinical sense. Yep. um, The benefits of it you've seen. Yep. I use it pretty much every day. And what was the first part of your question? Uh, what kind of type of patients types do you of patients, use it with? Sorry, yeah. So I use it pretty much every day. The best patient to use it with is someone who can't load. And when we say loading or progressive loading, I mean that's a that's a term we like to use for strengthening. So someone who can't do formal strength training, as you guys know, that your typical NSCA recommendations, three to six sets, six to fifteen repetitions, working to fatigue, failure, depending on what your goal is. If someone can't do that because of an injury, because of pain because of precautions from a surgery, then that's the perfect patient to use it with, or perfect person. But there are other ways to use it too. I mean, people are using this for recovery after games. People are using this to uh, complement their strength training programs. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Jeremy Lenicky, who is one of the lead researchers in BFR training, is uh, he was, I was listening to a podcast for him, and he's... Uh, He's out of the University of Mississippi. He's a big proponent of, his, of heavy lifting. And someone asked him, what's the future of strength and conditioning? And he said, people are going to lift less. So you guys did a podcast last time on recovery yep. and how important recovery is. I mean, we're seeing this more. Like People shouldn't be lifting as much as they did before in the past. So now, I think, and Brad and I were talking before here, complementing your strength training with BFR training so that way you don't have those heavy loads through the joints and the muscles. I think is another great avenue on how to use BFR. Well, I think too, it's more than just not having to load, like with, with your typical strength training program, beyond even not having to load, is there also like a protective component for the joints, for the muscles by using BFR? From the mechanical standpoint, yes. And to be determined, I think, 
for BFR. I think we are seeing with BFR, too, in one of the recent uh, publications from Brad Lambert's group out of uh, Houston found that there's a protective mechanism for bone following ACL reconstruction. So people's bone after ACL reconstruction becomes osteopenic because you're not loading it. You're not strength training it. Some of them are protective weight bearing for a while, depending if there's anything else going on. So yes, having BFR could actually be protective against bone loss. There's a few studies that are suggested of preventing muscle atrophy that can be hit or miss, but there are some flaws in the research that um, may be one of the reasons why we some of the research doesn't support it, but absolutely. So we can say there are absolutely some studies that support protective mechanisms for bone and muscle atrophy. So with the bone remodeling, is there also, um, I, I dove into a little bit, but is there also some studies on like osteoporosis, osteopenia, that population in general, and then trying to use BFR for that sole purpose? It's a great question. I haven't come across it. The only big study that I came across was a, a recent one, systematic review on bone metabolism, and they found four studies that showed, four good quality studies that showed positive uh, bone remodeling in terms of an increase in bone alkaline phosphates, um, decrease in bone turnover, but hasn't been applied to the osteoporotic or osteopenic cohort or a cohort, I haven't come across that. Okay. But the basic science is there for it, but we just need the application piece. Okay. So so I guess we should rewind back into the science a little bit more too. Um, for people who don't know what blood flow restriction is, what is what is the physiology behind it? I mean, talk through a little bit of like the setup, what it physically looks like when you're doing it, um, and then physiologically what's happening at a cellular level or with the muscles. Yeah, we should have started this. We right probably should. Have, probably should have done it. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Sorry, everyone. Just, we just get so excited about talking about blood flow restriction training. So yes, thanks, Brad. So blood flow restriction training. What that is is you take a tourniquet, you put it on your proximal or your upper thigh, and your proximal or your upper arm, as far as as it can. And what that does is it restricts blood flow to the working muscle, so it restricts arterial blood flow, but it fully occludes venous return. And what that does is it traps metabolites, particularly lactic acid, hydrogen ions, in the bloodstream. And by trapping those, uh, those metabolites, it promotes all of these different pathways to open up. And all these different pathways help to increase muscle size and, or, or hypertrophy, as well as muscle strength. So essentially how I explain it to patients is, if you hop on a bike... And if you can bike for a really long period of time, you're not going to build up lactic acid in your muscles. Maybe for someone who's just getting on the bike for the first time, that's a different story. But for someone who's a trained individual and they hop on a bike, they're, they're probably not going to build up lactic in their, in their bloodstream. However, if you lift really heavy weights or you sprint, you're going to build up lactate in your system. So essentially what we're doing with blood flow restriction training is we are doing a biohack. We're hacking our biology to cheat our body from preventing or, or, or not having to lift heavy or sprint, but getting the same benefits as if we were lifting heavy or sprinting. So how it builds that up with the, the lactic acid and all those uh, things you're talking about, at a, at a cellular level with like type 1 fibers, type 2 fibers of the muscle, 
Talk about how that selectively recruits one versus the other and kind of how that plays into the role of the system as well. Yep. So our current setup is that we have people perform one set of 30 and then three sets of 15 while under occlusion. When we do the one set of 30, what that does is it wipes out the aerobic system or our type one muscle fibers. And then once we get in our three sets of 15, we start getting the accumulation of metabolites, the lactic acid and the hydrogen ions. And then we start to shift our energy systems into more of the anaerobic, which signals for type two muscle fibering. So when we're rehabbing and doing straight leg raises, we don't have enough load or stimulus to really activate our type two muscle fibers. And those are the ones that atrophy first. And so now we can do a straight leg raise with a cuff on the leg and still recruit and exhaust those type two muscle fibers. So to your, to your point, it's a biohack. It's a biohack, <laughs> yes. So with that though, how about if you go the other way? Um, if you are an aerobic athlete, like you run marathons, that's your, that's your jam, yeah. right? Um, would you use BFR or would that, you know, selectively recruit more of the type two fibers so you wouldn't be training the type one fibers as much as you would need? And to, to just back backtrack quickly so people understand, when I say type one fibers, it's more of like your long endurance athlete. Um, type two, I'm referring more to like power explosive athlete sprinters versus distance runners. Yep. So for your marathon runners, they would benefit from BFR for a couple of reasons. First off, if you're a runner, you should strength train. Yes. Bottom line. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. Okay. Yes. And we have those conversations all the time. I'm sure you guys do too. But you need to strength train and and. Even if you just think about it for the final kick, I mean, if you're, your final kick, let's say you're running 400 meters, you are going to be recruiting type 2 muscle fibers because you're getting into that anaerobic lactate threat threshold. You've crossed lactate threshold, you're going to have buildup of lactate in your system. So therefore, you need to train your anaerobic system. So by training your anaerobic system, you will be benefiting you know, those last that last kick of your of your marathon or whatever uh, run or race you're doing but secondly there are studies that support an increase in vo2 max and aerobic capacity for using bfr in an in an aerobic or in a regular individual so the, the the example here is if you put a cuff on a leg and have the person walk at a comfortable walking pace on a treadmill or have them bike at a comfortable pace on a bike, we see an increase in, in aerobic capacity and VO2 max, which is really interesting. That's amazing. And one of the studies, they had one group bike for 15 minutes with BFR, 15 minutes with BFR, and the other group biked regularly for 45 minutes without occlusion or without BFR, and the group that biked for 15 minutes saw better gains in the bike than the group that did that bike for 45 minutes. And partly because when you bike for 45 minutes, you aren't getting into that anaerobic capacity or recruiting those type two muscle fibers. And the group that was under BFR was, and which is, you know, That's, you may be able to save time with some of your training too. Right, more efficiency. BFR, more efficiency. That, that is incredible. So we're going back and forth between kind of physical therapy, rehab, and strength training slash performance. Is there a difference in use of BFR for those two populations? Yes, absolutely. Number one, BFR is not for everyone, and not everyone needs to do BFR. And the reason for, before, uh, for that is if you can lift heavy and load appropriately, you may not need BFR. I know we talked about earlier that we can maybe lift less and incorporate BFR into your training, 
but you don't necessarily have to do that. I mean, if you can lift heavy twice a week, that might that might be sufficient. So for someone who um, is in the strength performance world, if you can lift heavy, you may not benefit from BFR. Plus, the BFR research shows that muscle strength is going to your the, your gains in muscle strength are going to be greater if you do high intensity training compared to BFR. Therefore, again, if you can lift heavy, you should lift heavy. But again, if you want to supplement some heavy days just to be more, maybe more protective of the joints and some of the tissues, then yeah, you can get uh, similar size or hypertrophy gains with BFR compared to um, resistance or compared to uh, high intensity training. So staying on the, the sports performance and training side of things, how do you see it or, or what do you think would be like the optimal way to incorporate BFR if you did want to add that to your strength program? Like say, um, let's go with the goal of vertical jump because that's something that Tom and I talk about a lot. Say I'm training to improve my explosiveness, my vertical jump, my speed. How would you incorporate, or would you at all, incorporate BFR into a training program with that? Like would you do it on off days? Would you do it as a means of recovery? Um, how, how would you implement that? It's a really tough question because I don't know if we can we can say we have the optimal way to incorporate BFR into something. We have some ways, that, but they aren't studied. What I would do at this point is number one is I would look at the individual and say, what's your training history? Because if you can train multiple days a week and you, your recovery methods are pretty sound, you may not need BFR. If you're someone who's trying to increase your vertical jump training and maybe doesn't have as extensive a history, needs a little longer recovery in between some of those higher intensity sessions, then maybe that's someone I would supplement BFR with twice a week. So if it were the latter or the, the, the latter person who does not have the extensive training history, I would do two high intensity days and then depending on what they can tolerate, one to two regular strength training days with, with BFR. However, as Brad and I were talking beforehand too, um, and maybe you can talk about how you incorporate some of the BFR into your training session because you do it at the end of your session. Again, if you can tolerate that in terms of a volume piece with your jumping initially, some strength training in the middle, and then hit it hard with BFR at the end, I think that's that's a great setup too. Which one is better? And tough, tough to, tough to tough. say. Yeah. So, so Brad's a good experimenter with this. So, so yeah, I mean, I I've been using BFR for I think two or three years now on myself. Um, I've only been using it with, with patients for a little over a year, but um, it's something that I like to experiment, experiment with my body in general, just try different things, see how they feel before I would use them with someone else. And I guess I've found it that way to, on the strength training days, incorporate it at the end of the workout. Um, I was telling John before we started here that I just yesterday did my fit, like full workout with BFR versus just doing like a couple exercises at the end as an adjunct. And I'm completely shot today. Uh, my chest and triceps are um, completely shot. But so typically, what I would do is do my strength training workout. Like, say I'm doing lower body, um, you know, doing the single leg strengthening or explosive stuff or whatever it is, lifting heavier. And then at the end of the workout, I'll just end with like BFR step downs and calf raises or something pretty simple um, where I'm just kind of finishing it off, I guess is the way I look at it. Um, I think one thing that, and, and I don't know what the best way to incorporate it is, I think one way that I would steer clear of is, and 
touch on this, um, is doing it at the start of the workout and then doing explosive stuff, yeah, right? Because, I mean, we're already, like, exhausting those fibers where you don't want to do that before your explosive stuff because, first off, you're going to be more exhausted, increased risk of injury where you're not going to have as good of mechanics when you're moving. Um, but then, second of off, when you do explosive stuff, the idea is to go as fast or as high as you possibly can. So if you're not going to get that out of it, then what are you really doing? Just right. conditioning with your explosive right. work? Yeah, right, right. And if you follow Journal of Strength Conditioning, and they do a really nice job posting research on Facebook. I'm not an Instagram guy or Twitter, uh, Twitter guy, so you guys can maybe fill in the blank there. But on Facebook, they do a nice job talking about the, re the, the current research that's out there. And one of them is recovery following your workouts and how even though we always say you know take a day off in between your workouts we may not have fully recovered by the time we resume our next workout and so with that being said too if you gas your system with bfr and you fatigue it out and then you try to do some explosive training one you're you're not going to be able to jump as high and as as far as you'd like to but you've probably even exhausted your nervous system even more and you're going to be have a really tough time recovering so I agree. I mean, the order of this and the, how, how you are using, I think it's totally appropriate. And with your training history, I think it's totally appropriate. But um, you just have to you know, interview the individual and see what their training history is and when the best time is to incorporate BFR. And to that point, too, with the recovery side of things, is there a difference, um, you know, timetable, like the 24, 48-hour time period after a BFR workout compared to a typical strength training workout? Anything can, that... Is in the research? Nothing that's in the research. What's recommended is to do BFR two to three times a week. So essentially you're doing every other day BFR. However, anecdotally from some of the patients that I've worked with, I've had a few that have tried to come in every other day to use it. And their uh, subsequent session, they have not been able to lift or tolerate as much load and had to adjust it because they've still been fatigued from the session before. So on the rehab side of things then, do you, because this is something I think about too in clinic where if I'm seeing someone once a week, because typically it's hard for us to get someone in more than, what, like three days a week? Yeah. Um, if you're seeing someone once a week, do you think it's worth doing BFR? I mean, what, what's like yeah. your, your minimal uh, like clinical dose that you would give somebody? Yeah. So if you look at the research they recommend in their, in their systematic review, two to three times a week. Okay. Anecdotally, I asked the question, one, how much, how tired can you get with your workout programs at home? Because if our goal is strength and hypertrophy, you really need to get either lift, lift heavy, but if you're really trying to gain size, you need to get to fatigue. And if they can't, then I tell them you need to come in two to three times a week. And if they can't make that happen, we've started an out-of-pocket program here. This therapy is expensive, as you guys know, and training and all that stuff is expensive, but they can come in, pay a, a cash-based visit, pay 15 bucks and they come in and they train with BFR. And so that way they're not paying, you know, their 50 or $75 copay and then a therapy visit on top of that. So it's worked out really well, but long answer to your question. And is that current patients of yours? It's not any lay person off the street can come in. It's someone you're currently seeing for it, therapy. It is, I would like to open it up to that avenue, but there needs to be some sort of training period on how to use the device monitor for any side effects there needs to be a thorough medical history that's done and right. so some sort of supervision some, probably yeah some supervision and so when i say we have people come in here 
someone who is trained to use a device is here. So it's not like they're just coming are just meandering after, in after right. hours. And I'm going to put this occlusive cuff anywhere I please. Yes. Here's my, here's my badge. You can swipe in at your own leisure. Right, yes. right. But yeah, that's something that I've thought about in the past too, just with, the, with patients. And I think that's a really cool model, how they're able to come in and do that um, more often in the week. Because, I mean, I think it's something, if, if your home program is, is solid, and when they come in the clinic, it's like, okay, we're really just trying to get them a, a really strong um, strength day. That's awesome to use. Um, but obviously, as clinicians, we want to give people things that they can do at home to continue to progress. Yeah. So um, I, I, I love that model of being able to come in and use that as part of your program for six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it might be. It's worked out really well. And then if you tell someone, come in two or three times a week, and like I said, they're paying 50 bucks every single time. It's it adds up, and you know, people don't come to therapy for that reason because it's expensive. So whatever we can do to get them through the door and help them out, the better. Absolutely. So if someone comes to see you and they're interested in blood flow restriction training, can they expect to do it on the first visit? Yes. Or are there certain restrictions, especially post surgically? Do you wait a period of time? Yeah, great question. Thoughts on that? Yep. So post op. I will always get doctors, doctors okay to do it. Timing on when to start it depends on the type of surgery they had and the size of the incision. Right now, I'm a bit more conservative on when I started. If someone has like a total knee replacement, has a larger incision, right now the recommendation has been six weeks. However, if you talk to, um, and Brad knows this, Brad is aware of this, and that um, if you're a certified provider through Owens Recovery Science, there's a Facebook page that you can you can ask questions on and a lot of individuals now practitioners are starting to use bfr with larger incisions really soon after surgery i've heard like two weeks yes so but any sort of scope or things like that i i'd say not the first day they come through the door just because i want to get the doctors okay and i want to just make sure that they're doing okay and they have their program set up for home but then second or third day yes get them on bfr and is the main reason for that for risk of clotting, or why do you why the wait period? The risk of clotting, and and well, no, for, for the T for TKA, it's um, healing of the wounds okay. because you're because the limb is swelling because you're trapping the blood flow the, the blood metabolites everything in the limb. There's a risk that there could be some dehiscence. I think I'm saying that cor- correctly of the wound, and so those larger wounds you want. A little more time to heal but if it's a scope and you're just seeing little holes in the knee you don't need that long that long time to heal is that true for even if you occluded the opposite leg so the non-surgical leg does that are you still worried about those risks so that's no not no okay great great point so if so i had surgery on my right knee and i want i was gun home about bfr after surgery you could put on my left leg day one and we're okay absolutely there's no no nope. risk of that. However, okay. I'd still clear with the doc first. Absolutely. Yes. Right. But once, it, and that's like I said, after day one, then yes. And that's, there's some good evidence too to show that putting it on the contralateral side will benefit the side that's involved. And the reason for that is systemic, right? I mean, you can even, if someone has like a shoulder surgery, you can do like bilateral leg BFR and still get benefit? Question mark? Yes, yes. Okay. So right now there is a, a randomized clinical trial that's being taken place actually at one of your your, your group, Alina's group, 
um, Dan Bus. Park Nicollet. Oh, he Park. I'm sorry, Park Nicollet. Yeah, never mind. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> so Park. Also, Nic- fake news. Fake news. <laughs> fake news. Uh, Brad is not leaving his job. He is not. He's not going <laughs> on <Carolina>. So, <laughs> so uh, Dan Bus, who's an orthopedic surgeon with, uh, um, he's partnered with Alina. His group is doing a randomized controlled trial for rotator cuff repairs to look at the healing of the rotator cuff after a repair and putting the cuff on the lower leg and doing exercise. Really cool. And there are studies right now. There's a nice Bowman study that was out that looked at um, doing doing um, cuff putting the cuff on the opposite leg and looking at strength and size changes on the on the opposite leg with very promising results. So absolutely, we can put this on the contralateral limb and not be worried about the wound if we are working with someone with a larger wound. However, I should also say though, that if you can, in order to see the most gains or to have the, be most efficient with use, utilizing BFR, you wanna have the the limb that's involved under occlusion. So even though you can put it on the other side, the gains aren't as good as if the limb that's involved is occluded. So that brings up another topic too as far as having it under occlusion with, um, if you could just touch on like the muscles proximal to the cuff, right? So like if you have a rotator cuff repair, you're not able to occlude occlude the rotator cuff, right? I mean, it's it's distal on the shoulder. So what is the effect Proximally, and why does that take place physiologically? Yep. So you hit you hit the nail on the head before Brad with the growth hormone effect, the systemic effect. So a couple thoughts of why that happens is number one, again, when we occlude the occlude the limb, we get a buildup of lactic acid that signals for growth hormone to be released, and that gets released systemically. So that's why we may see some strength or hypertrophy changes above the cuff. Secondly, too, if you look at it that way, um, you know, one of the, there's a uh, Yakuza, I, I gotta, I'm blanking on the author, but they did a bench press study to look at the size of the pecs and the, and the triceps and the changes after using blood flow restriction training with a bench press. And they found an increase in pec size. And again, the pec is above the cuff. And what they found too is you actually you actually fatigue out your triceps mm-hmm. to a much greater extent because the triceps is distal to the cuff, and now the pec has to work harder. So now you're loading a muscle that may not be loaded as as you previously previously had thought because now you've preferentially fatigued other muscles. Absolutely. Is there also a, a like buildup effect of um, like the blood pooling? Yes. Going up to the cuff, like proximal to the cuff. Yes, that is no, that's another theory too. Yep, absolutely. That one has not been studied. Okay. But that has been suggested. Okay. Since we're on the topic of kind of arm and upper body blood flow restriction training, are there any types of athletes? And in my mind, like a baseball pitcher, a quarterback, or a tennis player, where you would not put the cuff on their dominant arm or any athletic population types you would avoid using BFR with? And there's no research that shows yeah. the, the, the risk-reward ratio is skewed in certain populations? No. Tom, that's a, that's a good thought. I never thought about it that way, but we are using it for, I mean, there's, there's really not a sport that you wouldn't use it. 
and actually in the owns recovery science group that facebook group someone just posted a picture of some college pitcher with blood flow restriction with the cuff on their arm um after a game after he pitched for recovery for recovery so and, cool and so i i don't think so because number one while you're in season it's tough to train heavy and so now this is your time that you can quote unquote train heavy still get those benefits of training heavy but not have that amount of stress going through your your shoulder so i think that leads into an important thing to bring up too for the listeners is we've talked so much about all the positives all the things that it can do it's a biohack um you know it's it's gives these positive impacts without having to load heavy i think that we should spend some time touching on what are the negatives what are the risks what are maybe contraindications um is there risk of nerve damage or blood clotting or some things that people might think of because i think a lot of times when like things that we would call a biohack come on the scene people think it's all gravy but there's things that are wrong with it too like if you think like diet right i mean you can't just take your entire diet through a powder you're not going to get the same effects um so with with the thought of it being obviously groundbreaking um tons of positive effects what are the negatives what are risks um and what what does the research show with that Yep. The interesting thing there is the longest study that has been done, I think with the use of BFR has been four months. So we really don't know the long-term effects of utilizing BFR. So long-term effects, we don't know. From a short-term, what we are most concerned with, and that's why after surgery we talk with the docs to make sure they're okay with it, uh, is blood clots. And that anytime you put a tourniquet on your limb, that there's gonna be a risk of blood clots. Now, there's some caveats to this. Number one, when a surgeon does surgery, they're including a ton more pressure than we are. I mean, two to maybe three times more pressure than what we do in clinic. Granted, they aren't exercising while they're under anesthesia, as our patients are, but also as not only the pressure more, but some of these surgeries may last for anywhere from 90 minutes to two and a half to three hours, depending on what's being done. So now they're I think there's a time that they have to let the tourniquet down, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. We can uh, ask a, a surgeon that, but there's a certain number of, there's a certain time that they have to release the tourniquet before they put it back up again. But anyways, we don't have the tourniquet on as long. We don't have it under as much pressure. Yes, we are exercising with it, but again, anytime you have a tourniquet on, there's a risk of blood clots. What I tell my patients is there is a risk of a blood clot. The percentage of the risk of developing a blood clot is less than 0.1% and the risk of developing a PE or pulmonary embolism where the clot moves to your lungs is less than 0.01%. Where we get those numbers is from a hospital-based setting. Anytime you walk through the door of a hospital and your patient in the hospital, your risk for a blood clot goes up and they aren't using the sophisticated devices that we are. You know, they, they weren't using the surgical grade um, generation three tourniquets that we're using. So they weren't able to monitor those pressures, but that's the only, the only incident study that we have for blood clots. In addition, we're actually finding that when you put a cuff on a leg or a limb and then you release it, that there's um, a TPA, which is tissue plasminogen plasminogen activator. That avoid that we read, <laughs> and what that does is it's actually an anti-clotting agent. And so we're actually seeing these anti-clotting factors be released whenever we release a tourniquet. 
this is a, from another podcast, and I'm not promoting anyone to do this, but there was a gentleman who puts cuffs on his legs before he flies. And it's interesting because anytime you fly and you get an airplane, you have a risk of blood clot. And he would put a BFR tourniquet on his legs before he would fly to decrease his risk for a blood clot. Wow. So there's... I think there's going to be some very interesting things that come out. But I mean, like you said, it's super new. I mean, since 2012, that it's been like more um, used and, and more um, publicly used with that. I think there's going to be a lot of things that come down the pipeline that are interesting as far as uses and things that we didn't even think about. Right, and things that we don't use it for, we may actually use it for at some point. I mean, there's talk about diabetes, using it for diabetes right now, using it with the diabetic as a precaution, and they're... That they're actually finding that some, from a vascular standpoint that there's improvements in the vascular function of, of your of blood vessels and you know, things like that, which may actually help a, you know, someone who's diabetic who has you know, issues with circulation. So we may actually find as time goes on that this can be used, like you said, Brad, for more, for more types of patients. But other, other things that we should touch base on, not only blood clotting, but also uh, there is a risk of... Um, what's you're going to have an increase, a slight increase in your blood pressure. Your heart rate's going to go up because you're working out. There's a risk of nerve injury because of the occlusion from the cuff. But again, that's not like we're in the clinic. We're taking a TheraBand or a belt and wrapping it around our arm or leg. Again, we're using thick band, the thick cuffs. We're monitoring the pressure. We're taking the individual's occlusion pressure. So a lot of these studies too, and this is where some of the flaws are in that they standardize this to, you get 150 millimeters of mercury or 200 millimeters of mercury and we progress our way up with with that. But, you know, Brad, Tom, our all of our cuff pressures are different because you guys have massive thighs and I'm sitting here as a type <laughs> one aerobic athlete with, with, um, yeah, with the smaller limbs. But anyways, everyone's occlusion pressure is different. So we need to take that into account and because we use sophisticated devices, we have a, we decrease the risk of nerve injuries. There is a risk of vascular injuries. There is a risk of DOMS, but if you DOMS being delayed onset muscle soreness. But if you dose someone correctly, you're lifting really light weights, so you really shouldn't have DOMS. I can count of one hand how many times someone has actually had DOMS. Um, but those are some of the big risks with using BFR. But again, still a lot of unknowns in terms of long-term use. And, and with the short-term, you know, risks or, or negative side effects too, um, just so people realize a lot of that is things that just come with exercise in general. Like That's when you do point. strength training, period, heart rate's going to go up, blood pressure's going to go up, you're going to have increased, like, systemic inflammation temporarily. Yep. It, it's an acute stress on the body so that your body adapts in the long term. So, I mean, that's what exercise is. So, as he says, some of those things, I mean, most of it, or a lot of it, is just that's what exercise does to your body. And I think, I think everyone knows exercise is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Another question, and I think I've emailed you this before, but Brad and I both use creatine on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And at least when I was in high school, it was viewed as uh, almost like a negative thing, like you shouldn't use it. It had a lot of risk with it. And the research has really shown it's a very safe supplement to use. But with BFR, I've noticed it's a, it, it's a kind of a relative risk if you're using creatine and BFR. Have you yeah. seen anything more on that? No, you, you, did, you did email me about that. And the thought there was there's, you increase your blood pressure slightly with you, you would use creatine. And so anything where you increase your, um, your blood pressure, 
plus BFR may increase your risk of clots. And so there's really no studies on it. But again, if you're lifting heavy weights and you using BFR, or excuse me, if you're lifting heavy weights with creatine, it's the same thing. It's right. probably, you can't say for certain, but it's right. probably the same thing or the same effect as lifting light weights with BFR and taking creatine. But again, it's just stuff that we make sure we want to do an extensive medical review. You know, for the for females who are listening, if you're on birth control, that's a relative risk too. But you know, any anything that increases your risk of, of of hypertension or high blood pressure, coupling that with exercise, and exercising with the cuff may increase your risk of a blood clot. Okay. So with with that, you had touched on too, having these clinical grade units where I think each one is like 5,000 roughly 5, 000, dollars. Yeah. Um, so I mean to do a, to do it bilaterally where you have a cuff on both legs and you're doing squats or something, that's $10,000, right? So <clears throat> I know that you wouldn't advocate for using knee wraps or something like that and just doing some arbitrary pressure. Um, what would you say for like someone that wants to use it at home um, begin implementing BFR into their training, wants to do it relatively safely, but doesn't want to spend 10 grand, yeah. um, what would you say? Yep. First and foremost, I do need to say that I've never tried any other device except our, our tourniquets that we use here, which is the Delphi tourniquets. So with that said though, I have, I have um, used, uh, I was down in Arizona for a, a clinical a couple years back, and they had, I don't know the name of it, there was still a Doppler on it, um, so you're still still able to get a reading on what the pressure was. Was it an occlusion cuff? It probably, I think it was an occlusion was cuff. Was it red and black? Or was it, it wasn't red and black. Okay. It, it was it looked, Smart Tool, the black and white one? Smart Tool USA? Might have been, might have been Smart Tool. Because okay. um, they have like a hand pressure pump, and then you use a Doppler to gauge. Yeah, but but that one I think was, was, was that like a couple hundred dollars maybe? I think it's like $300 okay. for yeah. a home unit. And it, it worked really well. Um, I would say I had more um, like numbness, tingling as I did it, um, which for, for people that are listening, um, that's something that will sometimes occur um, and, you know, you can touch on it as well, but um, where you'll get, you know, changing of color in the tissue, obviously, because you're having buildup of blood in the area, sometimes like ning- uh, numbness, tingling in the fingers. Yeah. But I definitely noticed more of that when I was using this not standardized yes. unit. Yeah, Absolutely. I had a, a guy come in with armbands, and it's the one, and I don't remember the name, but it has a number on it, and you pull to a certain number, and they're really thin bands, and he wanted to know if this was safe to use for home. And the one negative thing about the, about our Delphi unit uh, tourniquet is that it's thick. So if you want to use, use it for bicep curls or some tricep work, it gets to be a, a little... Uh, bulky, in the way, yeah, in bulky. the way, yeah. So, uh, something a bit more narrow, narrower might be better for training the cuff or the biceps, but there's a risk when I say better in that you may develop some of this tingling. So, when I tried it with the guy's band and tightened it up, I had that same instantaneous feel of numbness, tingling going down into my hand. Yeah. Granted, I'm not a big guy, this guy was, but so everything's more superficial for me. But when I use the BFR for or the Delphi units or the thick bands for my arms, I don't get any numbness tingling yep. because that stress is distributed. So going back to what do you recommend for homes, well, what I'd recommend is a thicker cuff and something where you can at least monitor your pressures. 
And if you know someone who has a Delphi unit where you can go in and get an occlusion pressure measurement and then you can use that for home, then I think that's the safest way you can do it for home. So in that case, I recommend, I'm an occlusion cuff guy, so I'd recommend the occlusion cuff. Um, there's other ones out there, there's B-Strong bands, and there's another one out there that has, I, I think that had a cuff pressure on it. Um, your your um, add pressure, your Katsu bands also have mm -hmm. that on there as well. Again, that might be a couple hundred dollars. Your occlusion cuffs are 150 to $200. So they're, nothing, they're not cheap, but at the same time, you don't want to take the risk of having any sort of skin or nerve injury because you wanted to save a couple hundred dollars and you had something really thin that you're putting on your limb. Yeah, not not worth it. And there's something too where with the the width of the, the cuff that you're using, um, I think it's a happy medium because if you go too thin, then the pressure is so like localized where you're not able to distribute it as much. So you need more pressure yeah. in order to occlude the blood right. because it's not... You're not able to like, um, I heard a good example, I don't remember where it was, if you're like on a fire hose um, and it's filled with water and you just have one person try to stand on it and try to occlude the water from flowing through, it's going to be really hard or that person's going to have to be really strong or heavy. Whereas if like all three of us stood side by side by side, we would be able to occlude that water much more easily with less force distributed over each person. Brilliant, yeah, it's a great analogy. Yep. I didn't come up with it, so. <laughs> um, but but so anyway, that's something to, to keep in mind with that as well. Um, to circle back here a little bit, and hopefully I'm not getting too far in the weeds, but uh, when you were talking about TPA, which again, tissue plasminogen activator, I wouldn't have known that if I didn't look it up before the show. Um, but when you when you deflate the cuff, there is some increase in TPA release, right? Um, TPA, for reference, is what they give people who come in with like ischemic stroke. Um, in the hospital, right? So um, when they, if there's a blood clot that causes a stroke, um, they'll give them TPA to help diminish the clot. Um, do you know of any uh, research out there as far as using BFR um, for the TPA release as like a neuroprotective uh, mechanism or something to, you know, decrease the risk of blood clots rather than uh, or like decrease the risk of strokes or anything like that? Mm -hmm. I don't. The only thing I can say is I know on the Owens Recovery Science podcast, which would be a good reference for people who maybe want to learn more about this, and again, they're the, the torchbearers when it comes to BFR in the, in the sports medicine rehab world. But on one of their podcasts, they talked about, again, a number of different patients pathologies that we may be using this with and diabetes someone with heart issues i know they've thrown some thrown the term out there for stroke to minimize potential damage um so that's all that i know right now the idea has been thrown out there i'm not familiar with any research done something i'm um, interested in is um because like if you have like a tia like a transient ischemic attack um prior to having a stroke there's less damage from the stroke typically, right? Because your body is used to that ischemic event more so or whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm curious if down the pipeline there'll be things on BFR where it's similar to, whether it's cardiovascularly or neuro or whatever, um, having this experience with BFR and having your body get used to being occluded and having to compensate for that, is there gonna be these positive effects in the future where 
maybe you are long-term less likely to get a clot or less likely to have a stroke or a PE or whatever down the line. Yeah, that's a great thought. And then it circles back to exercise because your benef- the benefits that you see from exercising decrease your risk of stroke, heart attacks, you know, things like that, where if we're seeing those similar benefits with BFR, then maybe you're right. And so for someone who can't exercise, maybe just putting on the cuff for a bit. And there's there's settings where you you don't even exercise. You put the cuff on for certain benefits. Um, we won't necessarily get to go down that uh, uh, that pipeline yet, but you're right. I think maybe there's a select group of individuals out there who can't exercise that may benefit from I'm not recommending this because I don't know, and there needs to be some. No, we're, we're, just, we're just spitballing here. This isn't. But 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 maybe but maybe down the road that's what you'll see. People will just put the cuffs on, do some really light exercise. They get the benefits of a full type of workout, and maybe it's someone who goes on the new step or a bike and goes really light around with a cuff on them, and see some of those those benefits uh, from a physiological standpoint that we see with with regular exercise. That's a great great thought. I've also heard too um, that NASA is investing like yes. a ton of money into the yes. FR. Um, touch on that. Do you, have, do you have some stuff that you've read on that? I've seen one study out there about it's just more of the application piece right now and how they're using it. So I guess I can't really say as a study is more of a review article okay. of them using it. It makes sense because because obviously up in space you're not going to have that effect of gravity. So atrophy is something that they worry about. I mean it's hard to um, like get an effective workouts I think when, yeah. when you're like physically up in space um, so BFR is a way that you can um, again make your body feel like it's working harder and kind of biohack that system to get a more effect I don't know I, th- I thought that was pretty interesting that's awesome and then now with the research coming out about bone loss following ACL reconstruction and how BFR can mitigate the bone loss well if you're not weight-bearing in space maybe just throwing on the BFR will mitigate that bone loss as well Absolutely. That would be awesome. So, to kind of summarize things up here, can you give your positive impressions of BFR and where you see it going in the future and anything else you want our listeners to know? Yeah. I think BFR is a game changer. There's a lot of things we do in therapy that aren't, that is not research based, which doesn't make it a bad thing. However, there's going to be a ton more research coming out about BFR, and a lot of, there's a lot of clinical trials that are going on right now. So we will have more, because anecdotally, it works very well. And, and I think a lot of us who are using it regularly are seeing that. So we just need the research to back that up, and I think we're gonna see that in a couple more years. And so this is a device that I see um, it used in most clinics, and if you're with a, within a large hospital setting and you have lots of clinics, well, maybe they're dispersed around because they're really expensive. But you you will see it in most clinics, and then secondly, it's going to be taught in PT schools. I know over at St. Kate's, I've done I've presented twice over there for their their DPT program. So it's going to be it's going to be taught and introduced at in the PT school setting, and then I also think too we're going to start seeing more occlusive devices being used just in the strength training world just for more of either the recovery standpoint or for decreasing the loads uh, during the week because as I mentioned earlier one of the big things that we think where the strength training world is going is lifting less 
So how can you still make even more gains by lifting less? And I think BFR may be one of those answers. So I think you're gonna see it more in your strength conditioning world, your recovery standpoint. Um, and what would I like people to know about it? That's a really good question. I think we kind of summarized a lot of what I'd like people to know, except j just that if you have questions, I mentioned, uh, I can certainly give my contact information too if people have questions or, or I'm sure you, they can reach out to you with questions. Uh, secondly is Owens Recovery Science. If you have, or OwensRecoveryScience.com is a really good uh, resource. And then if you have access to any journal articles, whether it be through PubMed, there's some really good review articles, one by Dr. Robert LaPrade and another one, a position statement that just came out from Stephen Patterson and Johnny Owens and a bunch of guys and gals. Um, that'd be a really good reference too if you're looking for more information. But other than that, no, I think we talked everyone's ear off on BFR. And I just want to say for the listeners, um, it's been really fun having John here. Uh, when he was given the history on BFR and the story of how it came to be and everything, he was staring at the wall, not looking at any notes. So that just shows you, <laughs> so, shows you, shows you how well he knows all of this material, truly is an expert on it. Um, and it's been really fun for us to have him on the show. What's the best way to reach you or to come see you or if, if anyone wants to learn from you or even be a future patient if something happens, what's the best way to be able to get a hold of you? Uh, email is probably the best way to get a hold of me. And do I say it or do I? Do you guys put have show notes that people access or how do I? We could put it in the show notes. Just say it for them as well. Okay, yep. it's jcorbo, C-O-R-B-O-1 at fairview.org. jcorbo1 at fairview.org is the best way to get a hold of me. I practice out of the Institute for Athletic Medicine University Village setting, and you can go to IAM or Institute for Athletic Medicine .com and you and access our blood flow restriction page for more information there as well. Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to learning more BFR and other things, tips and tricks about strength training, performance training, physical therapy from you down the road. Uh, we really want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I know you like to sign out and probably say the last word, but thank you guys for having me. And it was nice enjoy chatting with you. And even though I mentioned Tom as a go-getter off the bat, Brad and Tom are doing the same thing here. So, Brad, I, don't, I can only imagine I met Brad for the first time today that you're a go-getter yourself. So it's awesome to see you know young guys such as yourself, young therapists doing all that you can at this point and really delving into the research and working hard at this. So I think you guys are going to make your – patients and clients extremely happy so all the best to you guys we really appreciate that we're, we're gonna have to have you on in another six months and get update the research and uh, uh, dive back into it again because i think that this is something that is bfr expanding so quickly that i think that you and us and we'll learn a lot more even in half a year um so we might have to revisit it down the, down the pipeline happy to appreciate it guys